In today's episode of MPs in Depth, we sit down with Simon Court, one of ACT's nine new list MPs. Mr Court is a civil engineer who has worked in both the private and public sectors, including for Auckland City Council. Simon, what is your political worldview? So Louis, I came to politics fairly late in life, uh, but I've always had a, uh, a focus on what can business do better than what government can do. And I developed that sense when I got my first professional job uh, working at a landfill of all places, which was New Zealand's first privately consented landfill. And when we compared that to what councils were doing at that time, it was decades ahead in terms of environmental performance and business performance. So you describe yourself as an environmentalist. In fact, in your maiden speech, you said you're a radical environmentalist. Uh, Does this mesh well with your representation in, I guess you could say, a capitalist free market political party? I think it does. Uh, Being radical these days means that uh, you actually trust scientists and engineers to deliver the solutions uh, rather than uh, regulators uh, in central government. So looking at recent environmental policy announcements, uh, we certainly do see a central planning approach. Just this week, we had the government announce the phase out of coal boilers by 2037, no new coal boilers uh, by next year. They also announced $22 million in grants for 14 selected companies that they could phase out these boilers. Um, Why why have you called this policy virtue signalling? So... There are many businesses in New Zealand which will continue to require uh, high uh, levels of process heat well into the future. That's our manufacturing base. Uh, The government, by banning coal boilers, uh, when they've already banned gas and oil exploration, is essentially taking out energy options without having any viable, reasonably priced alternatives to replace them. It's essentially taken rungs out of the ladder and ask New Zealand businesses to climb to the top. And under the ETS, um, don't companies already have an incentive to do things like replace uh, coal boilers if they don't, aren't they paying a carbon credit? So many businesses are already factoring in the ETS costs um, and they're significant to their production costs and and, and and the cost to consumer. But if they don't have an alternative, and in the South Island, for example, there are many businesses and in fact, Public organisations like district health boards, which rely on coal boilers uh, to produce the heat that they need to run their operations, they don't have access to gas in the South Island. Uh, Coal is all they've got. And the transition to electricity looks to be very, very expensive and has a great deal of uncertainty associated with it. So are there particular sectors that actually do currently rely on coal boilers? That's right. I mean, there are around 14 dairy factories in the South Island which rely exclusively on coal. And while they could start to incorporate some biomass, some wood in the future, uh, that has a much lower energy potential than coal. Now, how does this tie into the Climate Change Commission recommendations? Because when this news came out, uh, my immediate impression was that the government is jumping the gun considering they're framing this as a response to draft recommendations from the Commission. Well, I guess that's where it's hard to understand what is the point of the Climate Commission when the government is simply going to uh, produce policy that is already um, well beyond even what the Climate Commission has recommended. And the Climate Commission has, has recommended that uh, a New Zealand 
uh, ETS price of $50 a tonne would allow New Zealand to reach carbon neutral by 2050. And so none of these other uh, initiatives, none of these other policies or bans are necessary for New Zealand to reach its uh, its uh, emissions target. So we're already on track purely using the ETS? Purely using the ETS, but there are a whole lot of businesses that have already made commitments to renewables, which the Climate Commission didn't consider when preparing its proposals. I've spoken to the electricity generators, and what they've told me is that if you add up all of their renewable investments that they're planning over the next 10 years, that would easily meet New Zealand's emissions reduction targets. And yet the Climate Commission never asked them. And now the government is announcing more bans uh, and more regulations uh, without even waiting to to see the Climate Commission's final report. Mm. What we found incredible from the Climate Commission's recommendations is that implicitly and at times explicitly, they actually acknowledge all this. They acknowledge that we are on track using existing tools. So where do you think that this central planning regulation-based instinct is coming from? Well, I think that's actually at the core of the green and labour movements. Uh, It's a lack of trust for business. You were in Fiji. Uh, contracting on roading infrastructure, I believe. Uh, and this ended with you and a colleague being deported. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, that that was a, a very, very difficult day for me personally and for my family, uh, but also a very difficult day for the 90-odd local staff and the 10 expats that I worked with. I worked for a company that had been working in Fiji on a long-term contract to manage their roading assets and to manage some of their contractors who in the past uh, had not delivered uh, the roading projects and and other projects to the quality standard and who appeared in many cases to have been overpaid for some of the work they had done. So uh, I was actually uh, headhunted to go there and look at some of those specific problem contracts. And these these contracts were with Chinese companies? They they were with uh, Chinese government Uh, controlled construction companies. These are the biggest construction companies in the world. They operate in Africa. They operate in South America. And more recently, um, they've taken a very strong position in the Pacific. And you were looking at, was it the more financial side or was it actually the practical construction and the engineering? There were two aspects. There was the quality of the work they delivered. And in in many cases, uh, you you could picture Shanghai, you could picture other major Chinese cities, and you know they can produce some extremely high quality uh, 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 infrastructure. But uh, what they were delivering in Fiji was um, what I would call rip, shit and bust. Uh, They were were bulldozing um, through uh, areas and uh, leaving um, all kinds of uh, problems behind them. And what they were charging the Fiji government for and actually being paid for through soft loans through the Chinese Exim Bank, uh, which is their equivalent of um, the World Bank or ADB. What they were being paid for uh, or being overpaid for was poor quality work. And the reports that we uh, produced which identified that uh, and were very challenging uh, to uh, those officials in mm-hmm. Fiji responsible uh, for those budgets. And you, you were brought in by the Fijian government? That's right. The company I worked for was brought in by the Fiji government. So there was a, there was a period there where uh, we felt we were getting um, a good positive response. And the contractors themselves recognised that uh, they needed to do better. Uh, but then the crunch point was when they saw the number. 
that we had uh, identified as, as being um, potentially what they were liable in terms of rework or to repay. And uh, uh, within a very short space of time, I was heading back to New Zealand on a 737. How can that happen, that the Fijian government can bring you in to consult on a project and provide advice and analysis, and then when you do your job, they respond by deporting you? So there are many New Zealand businesses who have come a cropper in Fiji. And in some ways, it's important to understand that there's a cultural and social dynamic there. Uh, there's, and, and you know when you're doing your job as a New Zealand engineer, you must sign up to a code of ethics. Uh, we're like doctors. Uh, we're different from scientists. Uh, we, we have to sign up to a code of ethics. And, and that means disclosing things that are sometimes very uncomfortable for people to hear. So in hindsight, there may have been a better way to communicate those messages, but they still needed to be um, to be uh, laid out very clearly for the client. So to clarify, you're not suggesting, or at least you haven't suggested to me, that this was some kind of interference from China itself? I have no evidence of that. Okay. A completely different story. Tell us about Agent Orange. Just educate us, please, because I was astonished when I read that Agent Orange was manufactured in New Zealand. Yeah, so... New Zealand had uh, a military involvement in Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam War, uh, the the war uh, essentially for uh, the for independence uh, from the by the Vietnamese people, um, and that had gone on for a long time, you know, between uh, the Vietnamese people and the French, uh, and then the Japanese, and then eventually the Americans who tried to assist uh, the the Vietnamese government. But during the course of that war, a number of technological uh, uh, agents were employed, one of them being defoliants. In other words, uh, chemical sprays, you know, what, what we might think of as the modern equivalent of Roundup, but extremely toxic chemicals. And they were used to spray the forest to expose the movement of North Vietnamese and, and other soldiers around Vietnam. And the chemicals they used were extremely poisonous, they were carcinogenic, and they cause birth defects, and they still linger today in the soils and water in Vietnam and in the places they were manufactured. And about half of the product that was uh, used in Vietnam was actually manufactured right here in New Zealand, in, mm. in Taranaki, uh, at, at, a, at a plant there that um, has since closed, but that at the time in the Taranaki suburb or New Plymouth suburb of Paratutu, caused a lot of, of angst and a great deal of concern about the emissions from that plant. I was very surprised that I hadn't heard about this because I would have assumed there were widespread protests at the time, but was it really only local concern? So there was a significant amount of local concern. Uh, the New Zealand uh, health agencies and the manufacturer uh, had enough information they thought at the time to be satisfied that the emissions were safe. But eventually uh, those products uh, have fallen out of use because their uh, toxic effects on people and their long-lasting toxicity in the environment is unacceptable. Mm. I probably should have premised this by explaining that you have a connection to this story. You were consulting on a project, was it to clean up the, the remnants of this chemical? Yeah, so um, when I was uh, uh, early in my engineering career, I worked for businesses uh, who had contracts to clean up these type of chemicals at the manufacturing facilities and also uh, where these chemicals were collected, um, because they were also used in New Zealand, spraying on farms, local councils used them. They were widespread. Uh, they were our go-to products for, um, 
for, for um, weed control and pest control. And so New Zealand has a significant legacy of these products, which, which is now largely cleaned up. So yeah, I had a role as a site engineer and, um, and a project manager at cleaning up some of these sites and making them safe for future use. Was this a government edict or was it actually a private initiative to clean this up? So there are extremely limited rules in New Zealand around cleaning up contaminated sites. Uh, they essentially uh, put the onus on the landowner and only when the landowner intends to redevelop the site do the controls on contamination cleanup kick in. Uh, or in some cases, if there's a sale and purchase agreement, um, the buyer or the seller might might agree on what a cleanup might look like. These are always led by the businesses that have either caused the pollution or want to redevelop the land. Uh, the government does have standards that the land must be cleaned up to, but the government cannot force companies to clean up. And that's one of the issues that the government's now facing with a Rio Tinto at TY. Mm. Uh, then that they don't have regulatory levers to force businesses to clean up the historical contamination. Um, but those kind of laws um, are not common in New Zealand uh, or Australia or other Commonwealth jurisdictions, although okay. they are more common in the US. Now, you've also had history with Auckland City Council, uh, perhaps Auckland Council as well. Obviously, the, the name changed with the amalgamation in 2010. Can you explain the work you did with them and what insights that might have provided you into uh, the infrastructure challenges faced by local councils in New Zealand? I've had a number of roles with uh, Auckland Council projects um, as a contractor delivering road construction and road maintenance in Auckland and uh, more recently as a manager of their closed landfill portfolio. That's about 200 old landfills um, where records go back to the 1940s, 1950s. Some of them are very large, they're in the coastal area, they have stability issues, they're still producing dangerous levels of explosive gases. So, Sorry, so the work you were doing with Auckland Council was uh, related to environmental initiatives more so than uh, roading infrastructure, for example, or did you do both? I've done both. Um, in 2010 to uh, around 2015, it was roading and and then uh, installing ultra-fast broadband. Um, but more recently, 2016 to 2019, it was managing a portfolio of council uh, assets. So that, that they were pipes and manholes and pump mm. stations, which uh, deal with all of the leachates and other contaminants coming out of these old landfills. And what... What I learned very quickly was that the aspirations of Auckland Council and its professional staff and the communities they serve cannot possibly be met with the budgets and the resources that they have available to them. There is a huge gap. It's, there's, a, there's a deficit in, in the infrastructure that's currently serving our communities and what we actually need to allow for future growth and simply to contain all the contaminants and pollutants that are sloshing around in our harbours. When you look at, for example, the rate increases that are forecast by Auckland Council currency currently, uh, do you see that as an inevitability in order to actually close this infrastructure gap? So it's clear there's been a huge underinvestment in infrastructure for decades and decades, and, and yet uh, simply raising rates and expecting current ratepayers to pay for essentially management failures of the past and future growth all at the same time. So there's clearly going to be a much greater cost to renew our existing failing infrastructure and to pay for the infrastructure we need for future growth. Who pays for that? Uh, currently that sits with ratepayers and to a limited extent taxpayers. 
But what we've heard, um, even in the three waters area, which is your uh, water, stormwater and wastewater, uh, the Department of Internal Affairs has told us that it's not 45 billion over the next 30 years, it's more like 110 billion. So the amount of money that's required far exceeds what ratepayers can, can pay uh, across New Zealand. The government has to look for alternative funding solutions. Do you have a policy in mind that would actually allow councils to fill this uh, infrastructure gap without hammering ratepayers? Well, it may not be councils that are best suited to deliver this work. It appears they've been unsuited to manage their assets over the past 30 years, which is why we have this enormous infrastructure deficit. It may well be that the service delivery vehicle for infrastructure in the future uh, is through a different type of entity which doesn't uh, suffer from political decision making. So out of council hands uh, into a more independent infrastructure delivery service. Auckland Light Rail, is that going to happen? Auckland Light Rail, if it happens, uh, is going to happen extremely slowly and at enormous cost. We've seen that with City Rail Link. It was a project that was initially pitched at a billion dollars and with a four-year delivery time frame, simply to drill a tunnel from downtown Auckland to Mount Eden. I mean, that's just a couple of kilometres. Mm. Um, that project is now forecast to come in maybe uh, at six billion or six yep. times its original cost, and to take twice as long. Mm. Uh, and and now we hear that light rail may actually interfere with the final delivery date for city That's rail, incredible, um, because it's going to um, they've got to now factor in some kind of connection. Now, are you interested in any policy areas that are outside of your um, or the the portfolio areas that I associate with you, such as environment? Uh, energy and engineering? I am. I have a son with Down syndrome, so I've brought a perspective on disability to Parliament. Uh, what that has encouraged me to think about during my engineering career is accessibility for people who, who might not always be at the forefront of an engineer's or a designer's uh, or, or a service provider's mind. Uh, so that's around uh, accessibility in terms of digital technology, accessibility um, into uh, public infrastructure, uh, and so on. Okay. Uh, finally, what's Parliament like as a place to work? Have there been any uh, surprises in terms of the the environment, the people, the culture? Well, it's quite different from what you see on the six o'clock news. Uh, there is a, a large number of professional people that support the work of MPs uh, within the parties uh, and within the parliamentary service uh, organisation. So uh, they support the work of select committees, and what I've found, particularly on select committees, is that uh, when submitters come to Parliament or to committee to tell us about the things that are important to their sectors or to their stakeholders, they expect a fair hearing. And my observation in the select committees I've sat on is that they are accorded a respectful and fair hearing. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the real problems with government legislation that they're, that they're talking about are often not heeded, and that, so the, the government's legislative program continues unaffected by the real-world concerns of stakeholders. And we see that time and again with government having to roll back very flawed legislation, like the freshwater regulations, which um, included uh, criteria such as prohibiting disturbing any wetlands. And that sounds laudable until you realise that there are quarries and other operations which are consented activities, but which now can't put a bulldozer into the paddock to uh, open up the next stage of the quarry mm -hmm. because uh, the 
the government's freshwater regulations prohibit disturbing a couple of bulrushes in a wet paddock. And you're saying these concerns are actually clearly committed to select committee members. Do they not carry through into the final reports? So while they might be uh, communicated, in in that case, uh, the government's regulations were not widely consulted and the prohibition or ban on disturbing a wetland was not made, um, was not communicated to the stakeholders and to the industry. But what? But the feedback they got was that wouldn't be a good idea. We wouldn't be able to operate, and yet the government's actually gone ahead and um, and pushed out these new rules and regulations. And there are significant concerns that while we aspire to uh, a, a better environment and increased indigenous biodiversity, uh, the new rules that the government is bringing out and the RMA reforms will actually ignore our really important objectives around infrastructure and around providing infrastructure for homes and and allowing New Zealanders to prosper in the towns and regions that they live in. Finally, just about you, um, what's your favourite book, Simon? Most recently, I've read Edmund Hillary's book about um, all his adventures in India, uh, climbing Everest and other mountains, and his jet boat saga up the Ganges. And uh, another on my quickfire list, who's the most famous person you've ever met? David Seymour. Oh, of course. I think you met the debt monster in the Taxpayers Union lobby moments ago, so there's there's your number two. Um, and what's your fa- favourite New Zealand music act? It would have to be She Hard, one of my favourite hard-rocking um, Kiwi bands. You are allowed to say that New Zealand music is bad. New Zealand music's not bad. I was actually a big fan of uh, flying nun bands, the Dunedin Sound, back in the 80s when I was a schoolie. Oh, that's a worry because Grant Robertson is a big fan of those, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's probably an age thing. It's a very specific generation. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Simon Court. Uh, appreciated the chat on MPs in depth. Uh, tune in to the next episode of Taxpayer Talk. Thank you.